Hi there, this is OMN Coffee Shop Conversation number 144, no kidding. And there are no signs of stopping. I'm Tom D'Antoni, back at World Cup Coffee and Tea at Northwest 18th and Gleason. If you ask who makes the best trumpets in the world, a lot of folks will tell you it's David Monet who makes his right here in Portland. Both jazz and classical masters worldwide own Monets, and this is not news to trumpet players. Just this week, they were putting the finishing touches on a decorated trumpet for Brazil's Maestro Foro and shipped a new trumpet to Avishai Cohen. Who is this guy? What's his secret? Let's meet David Monet. Well, Dave, welcome to the cupping room, which is, that's where we are. This room here with the big painting of the uh, animals drinking coffee uh, here at the World Cup Coffee and Tea at Northwest 18th and Gleason, our benefactors here for Oregon Music News Coffee Shop Conversations. Glad you could make it. I'm, 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 I'm happy and very grateful that, that you could, because you're busy. Well, we're all busy, but it's great to be here. Well, so you're busier than most, I would think. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like there's a lot to do, isn't there, for all of us? <laughs> so, um, what's new at Monet Trumpets? I had a feeling you might ask that question. Yes. <laughs> um, it's a good place to start. Yeah, there's, there's a, a constant barrage of new things because everything that we do at the shop, every, every instrument we make is custom made. Uh-huh. So there's always new things. And... Um, Let's see, probably one of the more interesting things we're doing right now is we are about a quarter of the way through building the first Monette quarter-tone trumpet, ah. which is going to be very, very fun. I mean, you remember Don Ellis and the band sure. and Bulgarian Bulge and all that uh-huh, stuff. Uh-huh. So I love that stuff way back in the day. <clears throat> so it's exciting to, to do this quarter-tone instrument. You, are you building that specifically for a player? We are. And his name is so hard to pronounce, okay. I'm, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> all right. Where is he from? Uh, he's a New York player. Oh, New okay. York City player. Travels yeah. all over the world. Uh-huh. Yeah. I believe it's... I'll, I'll slaughter his name, forgive me, but and, and this is going to be on the podcast. But anyway, it, Itzamar Borachov. Okay. Do you know of him? No. Okay. New York player. Well, I'm killing his name. But anyway, New York player, <laughs> wonderful player. Yeah. All over the map. Uh-huh. And uh, it's going to be a fun project. What does he play? What, what kind of stuff does he play? What kind of music? He, 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 he plays jazz. He's a jazz player, but uh-huh. he does jazz with a heavy Middle Eastern influence, ah. which is part of his upbringing and heritage. Uh-huh. Now, so, did he come to you to make this? He did. He came to the shop three or four years ago and just fell in love with what we were doing and uh-huh. said, boy, someday I want a quarter-tone trumpet. And then he called a month ago and said, hey, I'm ready to go. And we said, we'd love to do it. Let's jump. And so we're, huh. we're already on it because this is going to be a really fun project. What's a quarter-tone trumpet? Oh, it's a, it's a trumpet <laughs> that instead of three valves, there's uh-huh. a fourth valve. Ah. It's the fourth valve down, and it drops the pitch a quarter-tone rather than a half-tone. Wow. Yeah. Are there many of those? No. <laughs> no. And the ones that have been made have been quite horrible. Oh. So we're going to make one that's stunning. Kind of like that left-handed trumpet thing you were, you were making. Well, we did that. We made an yeah. God left-handed trumpet, several yeah. of them, half a dozen of them, yeah. including one for Thera back in uh-huh. the day. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, this is going to be fun. We're also building an E-flat cornet uh-huh. that is a radical, revolutionary design. What is so radical and revolutionary about it? Um, E-flat cornets are not very high on the evolutionary scale, and they don't play well. They play horribly out of tune. Really? They're difficult to play, and they're the favorite solo instrument of all the folks that play English brass band music. Oh. So we're working on an E-flat uh, cornet that's almost done. Uh-huh. Looks beautiful. Looks really cool. <laughs> The sound is outrageous. The thing about Monet instruments, for people that might not know about what we're doing at the shop, Mm -hmm. if you watch any wind instrument player, whether they're playing a bassoon or a saxophone or a trumpet or a trombone or whatever, if you watch any wind instrument player just play through a couple octaves, Mm -hmm. you'll see that they nod their head up and down and that in certain registers, usually in the upper register on a brass instrument, they raise their shoulders or they bring their head forward of their spine so they're kind of choking a little bit. Yeah. And that's to make up for the fact that the instruments are remarkably inconsistent oh. in pitch center or resonance point. Uh-huh. So, and bra- for example, the whole family of brass instruments, the way they've been made traditionally, are very flat in the upper register. Uh-huh. So people have to raise their heads up. They pivot their heads up to compensate in their body. And in the low register, people bring their chins to their chest. They uh-huh. nod their head down, uh-huh. pivot their head down uh-huh. to compensate in their body for the fact that the instruments are inherently sharp uh-huh. in the low register. And the reason I got into all of this work I'm doing at the shop way back when was because I didn't want to have to tighten up my body and constrict and kill the resonance in my body uh-huh. just, by, just to, in order to try and play in tune on equipment that was not happy. So you make your own. So I decided to make my own. That was 1983, the first horn was made. Wow. So any instrument that we make that's a new instrument, the quarter-tone trumpet, the E-flat cornet, or, you know, whatever, there's a constant barrage of new instruments that we make. And what we're really working for is to make them, each one revolutionary, in that it has what we refer to as constant pitch center, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. meaning you play from soft to loud, pitch doesn't change. You play from high to low, pitch doesn't change. So you leave your body in a position where your body is aligned, your bones are holding up your body weight rather than muscular tension holding Uh, your body uh weight up uh so that you can get more of the full range of the human experience because you're playing with your entire body out the bell of the instrument to the audience. Wow. Which, Which, I mean, and that's the gig. That's the, the ultimate self-expression, then. This is it. This yeah. is the whole gig. If somebody asked yeah. me in a word, what is your gig? I would say my gig is resonance and intimacy. <laughs> and that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did you make your first one here? No, first instrument was made in Bloomington, Indiana uh-huh. in 1983. Wow. I lived for, in Bloomington for a couple of years. One of my mentors was the chairman of the brass department at the music school at Indiana University Mm -hmm. and uh, Charlie Gorham and I I love Charlie Gorham yeah and uh, he got serial number one and number two Monet trumpets yeah Um, the principal trumpet of the Boston Symphony got serial number three how did you know how to do this well that's a loaded question (laughs) that's a loaded question a couple Did, years, a couple years before the first Monet trumpet, I started uh-huh. making aftermarket parts for 
since there weren't one at Trumpets yet, for yeah. production trumpets that had already been built. Huh. And one of my very first customers back then, 1981, was Doc Severinsen. And this is kind of a fun story. So Doc called me up on the phone. I was working at Will's Music Store in Salem, Oregon, which huh. at the time was the largest full-service music store in the uh-huh. state of Oregon. Uh-huh. And the phone rings, and the sheet, woman, sheet music woman upstairs, Bernie, who was the manager of the sheet music sales, comes, calls down on the intercom and says, Dave, Doc Severinsen's on the phone for you. <laughs> and I go, yeah, right. This is one of my friends just playing a joke. And I picked up the phone, and it was Doc Severinsen. Wow. And he said, Dave, I understand that you're doing some work to improve trumpets. Can you fly to Los Angeles tomorrow and show me what you're doing? Wow. And the next day I was in Doc Severinsen's living room, and he had laid out his favorite two dozen trumpets Uh made in the 1920s and 1930s and Uh 1940s. And he wanted me to play them and evaluate them and pick what I thought were the winners of the two dozen. Uh And then he played the instruments for me. Uh And after he had played the last one that he wanted to demonstrate to me, he put the horn down and he said, what do you think? That's a, that's a dangerous question to no, ask you. It is a dangerous question, and here's what the dangerous answer was. Yeah. So he asked me, what do you think? And I had one of those moments that I know that you have had and uh-huh. many listeners have had as well. Anyone in the arts has had those moments where time freezes. Yeah. And you have like a combination of a, of a deja vu and mm-hmm. a strong intuition or an insight. Mm-hmm. And so in that split second, my thought process was, okay, Doc Severinsen has flown me to Los Angeles, I'm in his living room, he had me play his trumpets, he played his trumpets for me, he wants to know what I think, I'm basically an instrument repairman who was a mediocre rock and roll trumpet player from Kalamazoo, Michigan, (laughs) what the hell am I doing in Doc Severinsen's living room, I guess I better just tell him what I think. Yeah. (laughs) So I told him what I think, I said, Doc, if you'll forgive me for saying so, I think your sound is quite bright and narrow and distorted and has a nasal quality to it, and I don't really like it. Wow. And he didn't hesitate for an instant, and he said, well, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> and I said, well, I've got these aftermarket lead pipes, these Monet lead pipes that I'm, I'm just screwing around with this. This is not a serious project. This is, I'm screwing around with this just for the fun of it. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, let's play one. And he... We, used masking tape, and we masking taped a Monet lead pipe onto his favorite old New York Bach trumpet, uh-huh. and we'd move the tuning slide over so the top of the tuning slide was put in the Monet lead pipe, and the bottom was still in his instrument. Yeah. And he played this thing, and he sounded better, and it was easier to play. Wow. And he played it for several minutes, and he said, this is great. What else you got? And we tried a couple more, and then he said, okay, it's time to go. So we packed up and went to the Tonight Show, huh. to the taping. And that night, he played a Monette lead pipe masking taped onto the side of his New York Bach trumpet. <laughs> and that started three years of a Could you see that on television? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I have pictures of all of this. I'm surprised Johnny didn't make a joke about it. Uh, he did not. Yeah. I'm glad he didn't. Yes. I'm, I'm glad yes. He but I, was, I mean, I was nervous enough. I mean, you know, I was... You know, it's like, young. Doc, did your, did your trumpet fall down and scrape its knee? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anyway, so that started about a three or four year very intense time working with Doc Severinsen. And wow. he taught me so much about using one's entire body to play mm-hmm. and sound concept and what resonance is and what overtones and resultant tones are. 
he taught me just by example so much about acoustics. And he also taught me some subtle things that have really stayed with me. In the last three years or so, I've really been digging in deeply to somatic practices. I've been getting into the, what I refer to as the energetics of performance, uh-huh. which is, it, it, I mean, this is, this is how I will end my career as an instrument maker, in, and that's what I've been doing for the last three years, is integrating the subtle aspects of how to work with players uh-huh. so that they can better appreciate a better instrument. How do that you do that? How do you do that? Well, it's, that's, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I have a website yeah. devoted to this. It's ah. at DaveMonette.com. Uh-huh. And so DaveMonette.com. Uh-huh. And it's, uh, uh, the website is called Energetics of Performance. Huh. And the, the study on this website is to, and the work that we do with clients all the time now, is to explore what are the subtle pieces that the best players on the planet have that, that hugely contribute to them being some of the best players on the planet. Things that huh. other players, even good players, mm-hmm. aren't aware of, don't do, and often would not even believe could make a difference. Is this only trumpet players? No, I work with all sorts of players. Mostly uh-huh. trumpet, but yeah. now other players are coming in for this work as well, occasionally. What about other kinds of performers? Well, the thing is that this... This works with this. This work that we do works with any anyone because uh-huh. it is not trumpet specific. Yeah. So uh, let me just ask you, for example. Yeah. When was a time that you, you've heard lots of players over the years, so many players, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that you've heard some player on some night play and have a performance that was just transcendental. Sure. It was like who in the world? This who's this new person that showed up in the body of this person that I know, <laughs> and how do they do that? Uh huh. So from my perspective, you know, I've taught yoga since the mid-80s, uh-huh. and I've taught meditation, and now I have about 600 hours of training in the Feldenkrais method uh-huh. of, uh, of somatic work, and I have, uh, I'm halfway through certification in a, in a method called Zero Balance, uh-huh. and uh, I hope by the end of the year to be certified as a cranial sacral practitioner. I'm most of the way through the coursework. Uh-huh. to be certified in cranial sacral work. All of these things are somatic practices uh-huh. that have to do with re-educating the connection between one's brain and one's body uh-huh. so that we can do things in a new way with way less effort and work way more efficiently in anything that we do. And if you know the term neuroplasticity, Mm-mm. do you know this term? No. It's the cutting edge of chronic pain relief in medicine. Ah. Uh-huh. And it has to do with what part of the brain is uh-huh. connected to what part of the body uh-huh. controlling sensations or feeling or muscle movement. Uh-huh. So by this Feldenkrais method and zero balance and some other techniques that we use, we're able to rewire people's connections from their brain <laughs> to their body so that as they play, they can do things in non-habitual ways that are much easier. And the net effect of all of this is that players are able to expand in many ways beyond themselves, Uh beyond anything that they're used to. For example, if you ask any player, what's the best night you ever had playing that was just transcendental, it was just Mm -hmm. amazing, Mm -hmm. they almost always have a variation on the same story. And they'll say, 
you know, whatever, fill in the blank. It was September 2nd, 1989. Uh-huh. And they know the date and they know the time and they remember the gig. Yeah. And they often say, I don't know what happened, but my presence filled the room. I yeah. was at the back of the hall watching myself as I played on stage. Right. And I don't, you've heard this. Sure. Of course you know this. Right. Everyone knows this. It's been around the music world for a yeah. while. So yeah. energetics of performance and the work that we teach at the shop now to players that come in teaches people that that's not a once-in-a-lifetime experience. We uh-huh. give people specific techniques to practice, and we guide them through these techniques so they can experience that while they're standing in my shop trying them on that trumpet or mouthpiece for the first time. Wow. And once you learn a few basic techniques and get used to expanding beyond yourself, mm-hmm. um, which is it's a combination of techniques to do this. I mean, part of it is Raja Yoga. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with yoga? Not much. Ah, Okay. Well, the, the the best instruments that we've made since 1989 have uh-huh. been called Raja instruments, R-A-J-A. Uh, yes. And it's named after the form of yoga that's mm-hmm. the highest form of yoga. It's a synthesis of all other kinds of yoga. Mm-hmm. People know yoga as doing headstand or shoulder stand mm-hmm. or doing downward dog or mm-hmm. doing some physical exercise in a class. But hatha yoga, the purpose of hatha yoga is just to train the body so that one can be comfortable and flex enough, flexible enough to sit long enough that you can explore the higher non-physical forms of yoga mm-hmm. and then integrate the non-physical to the physical. Bingo. That's it. Ah. That's the ticket. And that's what uh. we teach people to do through guided meditation, through um, somato emotional release, which mm-hmm. is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating work. The emotional component in all of this. Mm-hmm. What we're really doing is helping people integ- integrate consciously mm-hmm. through all of the bodies, physical, mental, emotional, astral, etheric, causal, buddhic, and light bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How's that for a handful? That's a handful. That's a handful, but it's, it's fascinating because when people come in... When, by the time someone comes into the shop and wants to set up an appointment and come see me, they're, they're ready to go. Yeah. They know from listings on Facebook and from the reputation yeah. that they're not just going to show up someplace and yeah. figure out how to have some metal bent for them and do a new <laughs> instrument. Yeah. They know they're going to be getting some of this stuff. So our ticket is to figure out what's the in for that person. What gets them to the place that Doc Severinsen or Wynton Marcellus or Maynard Ferguson uh-huh. is at when they expand and they're filling the room? Is their access point the physical body, which sometimes it is? Yeah. Is it the intellectual body or mm-hmm. is it the emotional body? Mm. Or is it one of the truly non-physical bodies? That yeah. all, all of these bodies, quote-unquote, just make up the totality of who we are. Right, right, right. right. How does this fit into non-musical um, a performance. Well, it can. I it, mean, it, I, it fits I, into the human condition. Yeah. Because this work applies to anything. Mm-hmm. Although it's fascinating, the founder of the Feldenkrais method, Moshe Feldenkrais, noted in his last book called "The Elusive Obvious." Mm-hmm. On page 154 of the Lucy, "Elusive Obvious," Moshe Feldenkrais has a graph, uh-huh. and he shows that most of us run around on this planet with using only about 10 percent of our brain function. But he makes the distinction because he noticed this in his own teaching, that musicians, as much or more than anyone, have a unique opportunity to be able to tap in 
and access more than just 10% of brain function. And when someone hmm. is having the best night of their career, yeah. they're playing, especially in my opinion, if they're doing improvisational jazz uh-huh. so that they're composing music and playing music and doing this instantaneous, spontaneous channel and communication with the other musicians on the stage. Yeah. This is so much going on. This is, right. you know this. Yeah. This is your life. You know yeah. this yeah. as well as anyone on the planet. Uh-huh. This is a big deal. So how do you get to that space? How does the how does the switch flip on so that someone can get to that headspace and that access to more dimensions to what they're doing than normal waking consciousness where mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. sitting in a coffee shop just yeah. chilling? Yeah, yeah. That's the fascinating thing about this work. Yeah, I, I, I've never, uh, I've often wondered over the years. Um, I mean, I still with, with the radio show that I do now. I'll, there'll be there'll be a Friday night where I go. Oh, that was a pretty good show. But there was there'll be other Friday nights when I, I something takes over and whatever comes out of my mouth has nothing to do with what I'm thinking. Yes, sir. You know. Yes, sir. In a good way, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Because you're way beyond just an intellectual process of putting yeah. linear thoughts together to interview someone. You're actually yeah. tapped into something way beyond that, and right. that's what we teach people at my shop to do all the time, and it's thrilling. Yeah. It's absolutely thrilling from a couple of standpoints. One standpoint, for example, two days ago we had a 14-year-old come into the shop, a 14-year-old 14-year-old uh, freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. And he came in, and we worked with him longer than I normally would. We worked with him for two hours. And in two hours, he went from not being able to play a high C in tune mm-hmm. to being able to just barely get his first double high Cs mm-hmm. to come out of the horn and octave higher. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it was a combination of Feldenkrais work, guided meditation, neuromuscular work, uh-huh. Uh, and all the things that we do at the shop to yeah. combine yeah. to get this kid to play in ways that were completely non-habitual and much yeah. freer and much m- more expanded than anything that he'd ever experienced. And yeah. this happens all the time. This happens several times a week. People huh. from all over the country or all mm-hmm. over the world, they come in. Mm-hmm. We spend a few hours with them. It's very common that the brass players will leave with a third or a fourth or a fifth or occasionally a full octave more in their upper register than when they came in, which is unheard of. How would this work for a writer, for instance? (laughs) I think it works spectacularly well for anyone who wants to tap into anything that is beyond themselves. I mean, this is Raja Yoga. In my reality, Mm -hmm. this is Raja Yoga. This is the essence of Raja Yoga, which is the integration of all of the bodies that make up our body. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Now, one fascinating part for musicians, it's absolutely fascinating, and you have seen this thousands of times with mm-hmm. your gig. I know that you have. Mm-hmm. Players come in to our shop, and they might be fill-in-the-blank. They might be in their late 20s or early 30s, mm-hmm. and they might have enough experience and instruction that one would expect them to be at a certain level of performance, but they have days where they just can't figure it out and they sound like a junior high school student. (laughs) Yes. So we do a fascinating series of guided meditations with people that I think you will appreciate. We ask them to play something that's a little bit challenging for them and they usually are stepping all over it and things aren't going well, even though one would expect that they would be able to play this given their history and experience. 
So then we have them play eight bars or whatever of whatever they're playing again with their eyes closed, and we ask them when, when they're done with the eight bars to keep their eyes closed, and we're just going to do a brief five or ten minute guided meditation with them. Mm-hmm. When you do that and you ask the people that are stepping all over it and not having a good time, yeah. you ask them, how do you perceive your presence in this room right now? We're uh-huh. in a 3,000-square-foot room in my shop. Uh-huh. How do you perceive your presence? And they will often say, well, I feel really small. Yeah. And I'll say, well, are you bigger or smaller or the same size as your physical body? And they'll usually say smaller. Yeah. And then we ask the really important question. Now, in this room, in this big room, you're smaller than your physical body. And where are you in the room? (laughs) Where do you feel yourself located in the room? Mm -hmm. And about two-thirds of the time, I'm guessing on that number, they'll say that they're over in front of themselves or behind themselves, but to the left. And then the next question is, What's going on out there, and how old are you? How do you experience your age out there? Yeah. And two-thirds of them will say somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. Really? They're adolescents, and guess what's happening (laughs) when they're adolescents? Holding their instruments. Their parents are yelling at them for practicing. They don't support them wanting to be musicians. Yeah. And they're they're really being assaulted by disapproval. Yes. So, and various techniques, somatic techniques, have words for this. John Upledger refers to these events as um, emotional cysts, (laughs) the places in our bodies where we hold these emotional traumas Uh of disapproval. Even Wilhelm Reich, you know, a a zillion years ago, one of the founders of psychology, Wilhelm Reich wrote about this in detail. I mean, this uh-huh. is, this is uh-huh. straight ahead out of his writings, yeah. which I didn't know until years. I started doing this work with players 20 years ago, Wow! and I learned about Wilhelm Reich about two months ago. Huh. And I'm reading Wilhelm Reich, and it's like, well, shit, this is what we do with players. Yeah? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to do this work. Just, so in summary, I would say two-thirds of the people, when they're not integrated emotionally when their emotional body is not integrated to the rest they're out of their body often to the left and they're often adolescent and they're often getting yelled at and that's how they sound Ah. but there's another group of people that's probably about a third of the players that are having problems and they're over to the right somewhere for those people that know nlp this all fits into an nlp Uh formula uh but regardless of that the people i'm asking and doing guided meditations with, they've never heard of NLP. They yeah. don't know about this. They just know that a third of them are over to the right somewhere and smaller than their physical body. And you uh-huh. ask them how old they are, and they say, I'm in my 80s or 90s. And you say, well, what's going on when you're 80 or 90? And they say, well, I'm, I'm just so tired and old. I don't have the strength to even hold up my instrument, let alone play it. Yeah. And in their emotional body, that's where these people are as they're trying to play. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work, and they and they sound like it doesn't work. Right. Wow. Does this make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so we do guided meditation work to help them resolve as much of that as they're ready to resolve on a given day, which might be a lot or it might not be so much. It just depends on the person. We guide them back into the body, and we do specific tantric breath exercises, often with these people, uh-huh. to help them fill up their own container. Mm-hmm. Um, contiguous with and as part of the physical body mm-hmm. and then guide them to expand so that they come out into the room more and they pick up the instrument and play and they sound like they went somewhere for five years and practiced huh. 
<laughs> and this can happen in a half hour or 45 minutes. Uh-huh. And they sound truly like a completely different player. The guys in the shop, when we first started doing this, the guys, my coworkers, would be watching this because this is in our main shop room where we're building the trumpets. Yeah. We do this work because it's a big room. Yeah. The guys' jaws would drop and their eyes would bulge when they would hear <laughs> the difference. But now they're used to it. It doesn't yeah. make that much of an impact on yeah. them, yeah. although it does with the clients, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I wish that uh, everybody could feel what it's like to be in a band. Yeah, huh? You know, I mean, uh, it's 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 nothing. It's nothing like that anywhere else. Well, and as soon as you mentioned that, I flashed on um, being a guest of Winton at uh-huh. the at the at the premiere of his first ballet, mm-hmm. which was uh, it was a Garth Fagan ballet that Winton did the music for, and it was at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And I was hanging out with Winton, and Winton said, "Come on, man, come on, come on to the pit with us." And so I walk into the pit, and Winton says, here, just sit here. So I'm sitting between Winton and Herlin Riley, the drummer, oh, yeah. in the pit. Mm-hmm. I was two feet from Winton and three feet from Herlin, huh. and I sat there for the whole performance. And I've never wow. experienced anything like that in oh, my yeah. life. I think yeah. that's what you're talking about when you yeah. say you wish that people could Well, I think it's, you know, I've had, I've had a little bit of experience with that. Uh, the great boogie-woogie, the last of the great boogie-woogie pianist, David Vest, Vest, before he moved to Canada, uh, used to gig around here a lot. He used to live here. And uh, he, he was the only boogie-woogie piano player who also played Sun Ra. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, he would, uh, and he knew that, you know, uh, he was a friend of mine, and he knew I was, uh, I was a big Sun Ra fan, too. So he would have me read poetry. when He, he would have his regular blues band, right? Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, they, they'd break out into a Sun Ra tune, and I'd get up and read poetry. But, but not long ago... Um, there was a, uh, I got invited uh, to, uh, uh, Dark and Dusty, who was a, who's a musician around town, really interesting woman. Um, she uh, had a little show out, uh, a little, little dive on Foster, Star Day, and uh, she was asking for people to read, you know, um, and she and, and her husband and a couple other people who were going to play would, would play behind them. And it was a great experience because... I got to I got to experience three or four or five things happening at the same time, which I never get to. Mm. You know, I mean, it's one thing, you know, on the radio you're kind of multitasking, but not like I I I, I read from a, a book of mine from when I was a supermarket tabloid writer, and and well, I wanted to see if I, I wrote this I wrote the jokes in 1986. I wanted to see if they still killed, and they still killed. But anyway, so I'm reading this piece, right? <laughs> Which is grandma turns pet dog inside out looking for a lost lottery ticket, and and okay, so I'm I'm, re- I'm, re- I'm paying attention to the band. I'm getting with them. Uh, I'm trying, you know, I'm 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 dealing with the audience because I, I I really would like these sh- these jokes to still kill. I'm finding that the jokes still kill, right? At the same time, there's a voice in the back of my head saying, "Geez, I forgot how fucked up this was." <laughs> <laughs> and I never, you know, people don't get to experience that, you know. Uh, it's a, it's a really great thing, you know. I mean, if if more people could be in a band, <laughs> yeah. But you know, you have to. In order to do that, you have to be able to play a musical instrument. That's well, the problem. <laughs> some of the some of the amateurs that come in that we do this energetics of performance work with, some of their peak experiences have been not in the music world. Hmm. Um, you know, one uh-huh. physics professor and his peak experience 
was when he was invited to give the keynote speech to a group of physicists from all over the world. Uh-huh. And he showed up and he, and he starts reading and he was pretty disoriented because he, he felt, same as that we're talking about, yeah. he felt his presence filling the entire room yeah. and he had not experienced that oh, before. Yeah, yeah. So it took him a minute or more right. to acclimate to that before he could kind of get it together. He said he was yeah. a little bit spaced out for the first part yeah. of his yeah. presentation. <laughs> but but it, this, this work is not unique to musicians, yeah. but it's a natural for musicians. Right. Well, I, I've, always, I've always said I never met a mic I didn't like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's yeah, I understand. So look, let's get back to the trumpets for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, about a year ago or two years ago, you decided to reinvent the bell on your yes. trumpet. Yeah, we decided. Well, it was interesting. It was um, uh, right when I started the Feldenkrais work, the Feldenkrais uh-huh. uh, training. Right then, a whole bunch of stuff came in. Not just the the, the realization that I needed to study somatic practices Mm -hmm. but i also got that it was really time to make a big jump in the the quality of the metal work Mm. and the design of fabrication of parts of monet trumpets so i redesigned the monet trumpet bell that had been the standard design that would used for 20 years right this is after having been the, the, the greatest trumpet, trumpet maker in the world, right? Well, that's you're gonna, you to say. Some you, 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 say you're going to you, just, just, okay, let's do something different. Time to do right. it better. Well, <laughs> my thought was, okay, if I'm going to stick around and keep doing this, and if yeah. I'm going to get into all of this somatic work mm-hmm. and this esoteric work, I need to bump up the quality of the physical metal that I'm bending ah. to match that. And so that happened. So we came up with a new bell design that was uh-huh. radical and a new yeah. lead pipe design to go with it. And all this happened at the same time. This was right at the end of 2014, uh-huh. beginning of 2015, right as I did my first Feldenkrais classes. Wow. So it all, it all fits together. Every time that I've had any kind of a jump in my meditation practice or yeah. an up level of any of my personal work, it absolutely, it always comes through in the instruments in specific huh. physical details, such as the new bell design. Huh. Huh. What was wrong with the old bell? There's nothing really wrong with it. It just needed to be refined. Huh. It needed to be refined. The first bell mandrel that we used forever, I got What's a, a mandrel? Pardon me? What's a mandrel? Oh, thank you for asking. So the way one forms a trumpet bell, which is half of the length of a trumpet or a trombone or any uh-huh. brass instrument... Uh-huh. Uh, brass is wrapped around and formed on mm-hmm. a steel form. Uh-huh. And the steel form needs to be the exact dimensions that you want for the inside mm-hmm. to define the shape exactly of yeah. the bell that you're making. Right. So that's what the mandrel does, is it defines the shape I exactly. See. Okay. So It's not, in fact, an animal. <laughs> no, no, so, well, it's, to us it almost is an animal but yes, to yes. an outside observer just looking at a trumpet factory they'd see a table full of steel man you're not trying to tell me that you anthropomorphize the trumpets are you, are you? <laughs> well we do yeah. well we have clients that do oh I'm sure we have clients that do because they, the they name them and everything y- yes they say things like you know, my new, new Monet trumpet is just unbelievable. I love my trumpet. Yeah. And then they'll say, no, you don't understand. I love <laughs> yeah. my trumpet. So, I, like, I like to tell us, this, this is a great avant-garde uh, cellist named Zoe Keating. Lived here for a while. And uh, she had a, a, her, her cello, she had, when she had gotten, 
when she was a teenager and you know and, and she was in her 30s by the time you know I was talking to her and she says she had to go to cello and she said it, it was like dating uh-huh. you know yeah. going on a date with a new cello yeah how's he going to treat me <laughs> you know yeah. all that stuff is yeah. there chemistry well, that's yeah. the dance. That's exactly yeah. the dance that we do. Custom to every instrument we make is custom yeah. designed and yeah. built. Yeah. So that's the dance we do with every customer. Wow. Is what's going on with this person? Where are they at? What? Where are uh-huh. their doors to access a higher uh-huh. musical process that they re- are really trying to look for? And what can we do? How much can we build in the instrument to complement and try and get the instrument out of the way for them without having it be so much better or so radically different that it overwhelms them? Oh, yeah. And they can't relate to it. And so they retrench. Huh. Right? Huh. People can stand huh. a little bit of improvement. Sometimes people can stand quite a bit of improvement. But if you give people too much, either in an instrument uh-huh. or in the energetics of performance work we do, it's, it's an overload. Uh-huh. People retrench. Uh-huh. In the old habits, sometimes uh-huh. deeper than they had before. Like they're not worthy of the instrument? No, no, it's not that they're not worthy of it. It's just that the instrument isn't right for them. Oh, okay. Someone has, someone has the right instrument where the instrument just almost ceases to exist hmm. when hmm. it just gets out of the way. And to that end, you ask me what's new with Monet Instruments. Yeah. The last five or six years, we've really gone to making over half the instruments that are ordered have integral threaded mouthpieces. Huh. So people are used to brass instruments with a mouthpiece just coming right out of the instrument. Uh-huh. On over half the instruments we make, it's not that easy because they're threaded, but th- when they're screwed all the way in, they're integral. Yeah. So you can't see that it's a separate piece of metal. Wow. And that leads to way more connection and way less loss uh-huh. between the mouthpiece and the instrument, uh-huh. therefore a better connection from the player to the audience. Or the, jo- the joke that we say is... Yeah. With a Rajah instrument, we call it, which is a threaded integral, an integral mouthpiece instrument, yeah. uh-huh. there's only one thing between the player and the audience instead of two things. <laughs> and then the orchestra musicians always say the same thing. They always say, well, unless you count the conductor. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, um, uh, but you, you are still you know, very, very well known for your mouthpieces. People swear by your mouthpieces, oh, even, yeah, if, they, yeah, even if they don't have a, a trumpet. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. a, a Monet trumpet. We mouthpieces a month and deliver them to musicians all over the world that, for whatever reason, don't uh, choose not to get a Monet trumpet right away yeah, or yeah. can't afford it or whatever. They get the mouthpiece, and the mouthpiece is really, in a way, in a way it's almost more important than the trumpet. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Those old-fashioned mouthpieces are wow. so antiquated and out of tune. They just yeah. Well, that's how I got into all of this way back when. Was, yeah. These conventional mouthpieces tie players up into knots, wow. trying to figure out how to play and compensate in their body for how antiquated the designs are. Uh. So the mouthpiece is a big deal, and we make a lot of them. And yeah, I remember a few years back, um, uh, Big Sam and Trombone yeah. Shorty yeah. Uh, played the Blues Festival, and they came out to see you. And yeah. and I then I saw them that night. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, the, 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 that was a the festival ends on a Sunday. I saw them the next night at down at Roseland. They had, they had some, they, they'd given them a gig, and they had they had your new mouthpieces, and they were yeah. losing their minds because yeah. they loved it so much. People really like Monet mouthpieces. I'm, yeah, I'm thankful about that. <laughs> yeah. Do you yeah. make you, you ever make trombones? Well, it's an interesting question. I just got a text from Jim Pugh this uh-huh. morning, and he's going to uh-huh. be in town playing with Steely Dan. Yeah. Uh, the first or second week of June, and we have the first jazz trombone about uh, roughly about halfway built 
Wow. And I don't know if we're going to be able to finish it uh, in time for Jim's visit in June or not, but I sure hope so. Because he's asked me for a trombone. He started asking me for a trombone, a Monette jazz trombone, in 1985. <laughs> so, what well, took you so long? Well, <laughs> you know what? The, the prototype, prototyping instruments is really, really expensive, and the expense uh, yeah. is the time. Yeah. Yeah. And we're always, it seems like we're always just slammed on everything. Yeah. Every order that we get is a custom order, so it's a new instrument. So we're constantly building prototypes anyway. Yeah, yeah. And we're used to doing valve instruments. The trombone is a different thing, of course, because of the slide. Right. But anyway, it's coming. Has it been an interesting you know, experience to build a trombone? Uh, it's, it's been validating in that everything that I know about um building soprano brass instruments mm -hmm. applies exactly. Ah. So at least so far, it's remarkably easy other than just the time of making the tooling and mm -hmm. learning how to fabricate the parts, which is very, very expensive. Yeah. Do expensive you, to do. Do you still play? I have to. I don't have a choice. Okay. I'm an industrial trumpet player. <laughs> so I need to I, I test and adjust every single instrument that has ever left the shop. I yeah. have to. Yeah. There are fine adjustments to get the pitch center going so that it has constant pitch center, so that it plays mm -hmm. effortlessly through the dynamic range and the register of the instrument. I do all that work. But you don't perform? Never. I have absolutely no desire to. Really? It's a completely different skill set. What I do is I am, if I dare say this, I'm a pretty darn good play tester. Uh -huh. I can evaluate instruments really, really well, better than most players who are spectacular professional musicians, because I have the ability to be more objective about what the instrument is doing, mm -hmm. or making me do that I don't want it to do, whereas great musicians pick up any instrument, I mean, ask any, great, any great musician can pick up any instrument, and in a few moments, they're going to sound great on it, because they'll just automatically adjust in their body and do whatever they have to do yeah. to make it work and get the closest thing to the sound that's in their head. Uh-huh to come out the bell, huh. but ask them what they're doing to compensate or how they're doing that, and yeah. they don't have a clue, because huh. it's not their job to know. Huh. It's my job to know, which is why the yoga, 30 years of yoga teaching and meditation and the Feldenkrais work and the zero balance work uh -huh. and the cranial sacral training that I have, all of that comes into play. So the people who work for you are the only, the only ones who get, get, get to hear you play a solo. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> they have me, we've done a few TV specials. A couple yeah. of years ago, we did a, a TV special for PBS, yeah. and they got me to play a couple of notes. All right. Just play testing. <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't bother to try and play music. If I want to hear somebody play music, I'll go listen to... Well, you came out. You came out yeah. in December, and you heard Scotty Barnhart I did. play a whole prototype Raja instrument. Yeah. It was outrageous. Yeah. And thank you for, for, the, for, for the invitation. Oh, it was great to see please you. Please do Melissa. it again. Anytime you and Melissa can come out, please come out. But... Yeah, so I don't need to make music. My clients are making the music. Okay. I need to make the instruments. They make the music. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been great. Um, I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> this has been really fun for me, Tom. I can't thank you enough. No. After it, all these years. Yeah, yeah. Because you and I have known each other a long time. long time, yeah, because, well, I think maybe... I met you when you made the left-handed trumpet for Ingrid Jensen. Yes. Yeah. That didn't work out, did it? 
Well, she decided she really thought that she wanted it. Yeah. And then she found that playing left-handed was a little bit more difficult than she thought it would yeah. be. Yeah. She yeah. thought that it would really free up her right brain activity uh-huh. and that she could be more creative on it. Yeah. But the physical here we go. Yeah. So, right? So there's different aspects right. to all of this. Right. In her physical body, it was too much for her to really deal with the right. physical, mechanical, yeah. biomechanical action of playing yeah. left-handed. Yeah. Yeah. So she loaned it to a friend who loves it. That's good. <laughs> that's, that's excellent. But I think that's when we, that's probably when we first met. And when, when I first started Oregon Music News, you were right at the top of the list there. Ah, lovely. <laughs> and so it's great to see you. Um, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.